0: Welcome everyone. This is Local Bag. You're listening to KDBS 90.3 FM and in the next hour and a half you're going to be listening to No Police Radio. The following views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDBS, KDBS sponsors, or the University of California. Welcome to No Police Radio. You can hear us every other week discussing all things abolition from tuition to the prison industrial complex. Everything that has to go to make way for a free university will feature conversations with guest guest organizers, abolitionist scholars, and people who have taken part in the university's radical history, all with an eye towards how we get free. Once again, this is No Police Radio, and you're listening to KDBS 90.3 FM.
1: back once again to no police radio here on KDBS 90.3 fm i am dj abby and i am here with the amazing
2: hi everybody what's good davis this is dj odette we're really happy to be back we haven't been here i sort of feel like the there's this old saturday night live with the two uh, the two NPR radio people who like sort of <laughs> who think they're really funny, but they're not that funny. But that's what makes it funny. So you know, maybe we're like that. I don't know. Anyway, hi, I am DJ Odette. Really happy to be with you all on No Police Radio.
1: Thinking I'm funny and not really being funny is what I do best, Odette. <laughs> so, um, so today we have uh, a special guest. Uh, A UAW rank and file member, Madalena, is going to be with us here uh, to discuss uh, the demand that uh, several demands that were contained in the strike negotiations from last quarter uh, that that might not have caught the attention of the general public. Um, And so we're going to be talking with her about that. And then we will also uh, finish out with our, our usual segment this week in abolition, where we cover a bad cop and a good project, and we've got two two sort of great things lined up to talk about there. So,
2: Yeah, that's awesome, and I guess um, that is it before we get started. I get, You know, we haven't been here in a while. I don't know if we want to just say, like, you know, what we did over our break or anything like that, just so that everyone's familiar with us again. Did anything interesting happen to you, Abby?
1: You know, uh, it was as as everyone listeners know uh there were a few a, a, a few rainstorms over the break uh and we had power out for a little bit uh and you know it was just just sort of breathtaking to see uh the impact of climate change really um was uh kind of the highlight of my break or the the most notable part of my break How about you
2: yeah i mean uh, highlight is maybe not the quite the word <laughs> so I live in a very very uh out of the way rural place where no one can find me and the power went out for nine days which is a lot and like we had ways to deal with it but you know on day three of no shower i I gotta say i was like this isn't super fun (laughs) anymore and it makes you very grateful for you know um the things that you have if you have them which not everyone does um but it's true like it really it was a very very uh kind of sobering comment on climate change. Um, There are a lot, you know, where I live, there's lots of like older folks who've been there for a really, really long time. And they said, you know, they've seen some bad storms before, but this is the worst they've seen. And it's just gonna keep, you know, it's just gonna keep going. So yeah, I mean, this is a show, a show about abolition is a show that is attacking racial capitalism too. And racial capitalism is one of the things that is making our, uh, that is threatening our climate and our environment so much. So yeah, so it's probably important to point that out. So there's, so there's a little bit of uh a depressing what i did over my break <laughs>
1: absolutely yeah. as the uh, we
2: specialize in depressing
1: as as the lights went out on uh, at one point uh neighbors came over and knocked on our door and um you know just checking if we were okay and it it reminds me that community is what keeps community safe um and uh if if for nothing else events like this are, are good to remind us of that so
2: thanks it's good that you didn't go all hunger games <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, we're going to catch one more song, and then we will be back with our guest, uh, United Auto Worker rank-and-file member, Madalena.
2: the iconic Curtis Mayfield playing the equally iconic Superfly, and you are listening to No Police Radio on KDVS 90.3 FM. And we are just about to introduce our special guest, which we're excited about. But I wanted to mention also that in addition to our usual good cop, bad cop segment, we are also going to feature a funny cop (laughs) segment um, at the very end of the show uh, that is going to talk about something that happened like right outside the MU and I know we have some Coho listeners today so shout out to Coho workers Um, we are really glad to have you listening and we'll have a little story about something that took place about the MU at the end so go ahead Abby sorry
1: so our guest today Madalena is a disabled chronically ill autistic and ADHD PhD candidate at UC Davis who is also a rank-and-file member of the UAW 2865 and SR Union and is also a proud wildcat striker. She's a first-generation college student and a police and prison abolitionist whose work has included organizing and running expungement clinics in the Central Valley. She also has helped formerly incarcerated and system-impacted community members work toward pursuing their formal educational goals, such as high school and college degrees. Thank you so much for coming, Madalena.
3: Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to talk with you all.
2: Hi, Madalena. We are so happy to have you. And before we start talking, I just want to begin by saying, hell yeah, proud proud wildcat striker. I'm so glad you put that in your bio. And that's something we could even talk about a little bit since we're going to be uh, speaking a bit more broadly about labor organizing, about institutions and following their rules or not following them. So, yeah, that's... um, that's something that I wanted to shout out. Um, so I thought that we would start out, you know, one of the things that I was thinking was that um, for the general public outside the, the strikers themselves, you know, there was probably a good deal of awareness of the strike, uh, but it was probably, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that a lot of that was um, awareness of the strike as a demand for higher wages. There were probably folks who were following the story of the strike who also read about the COLA, the cost of living adjustment, and that is probably something that people were familiar with. But we were thinking that um, a lot of folks, you know, in the area connected to the UC or, you know, just generally interested interested in labor organizing um, might not have been as aware that... The original demands that um, that were negotiated over included demands that had to do with access for disabled folks, and that also had to do with policing. So I was wondering, just to get everybody informed, if you could just say a little bit about what was in those demands and um, and what happened to them.
3: Yeah, no, thank you. I'm really glad that um, I'm getting the chance to to speak about these things because, as you're saying, it it kind of quickly rhetorically became all about wages, but for a lot of us, that was not what it was. Um, So just for a little bit of context, the articles that I'm about to talk about, they were actually present for the strike authorization vote. Um, And this means that when we got, you know, this kind of like historic 98% membership vote for a strike, 98% 90%, 98% of those voting effectively were saying yes to wanting these articles, right? They were part of our original demand. Um, and although these articles, they were fairly quickly, uh, I mean, I'll talk about this a little bit, they were painted as being sort of too radical or unattainable. I think we should just remember that 98% of us started out saying we wanted these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, with that with that background, I first want to talk about what was called the Community Safety Article. And this one, this remained on the bargaining table a surprisingly long time. I believe that it didn't actually officially disappear until we went into mediation. Hmm. But uh, if you look at it at the, the Fair UC Now website, which is the sort of like UAW official website that's talking about the strike, it's not even listed as one of the bargaining issues. So you can kind of see the movements that happened with that. There were three elements to this article. The the first element was defunding the UC Police Department budget. The second was to refrain from calling law enforcement of any kind for events on campuses. And the third had a couple of different parts to it. Um, It was that all academic student employees, or ASEs, you'll you'll hear people call us, um, that ASEs had to be notified if police or law enforcement of any branch were on campus, and that included, you know, where they are, how many there are, why they're there, and like the duration of time that they're going to be there, and then. Also, as part of that is that ASEs would be protected from any kind of retaliation from deciding not to put yourself at risk by coming to campus if law enforcement were, were present within your workplace vicinity. Huh. Um, and then additionally, being paid for any time that you have to take off to avoid that law enforcement presence. So. Also, just for a little bit of history, I mean, that's like a a really short three-point article, but that short article, um, that was a reduction from like a six-page long article that was submitted by the UAW in 2018 called the Health and Safety Article, right? So even this article, although it was short, it didn't come from nowhere, right? There's a history even within organizers within the UAW wanting this kind of article. But what happened was pretty soon into the strike, you know, at least at Davis, um, the call to defund the police really quickly became disparaged, and it became marginalized. It was totally recreated as a fringe position. Um, I think a like a really good example of this is like the first week of the strike, I remember being surprised that I, like our chant from, from the wildcat, cops off campus, cola in our bank account, mm-hmm. um, that was being led by a strike captain with, with a megaphone. Oh. And then uh, really shortly thereafter, people were told to stop saying either of these at all on the picket <laughs> line, right? So there was just this really quick change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second part is around disability justice. And there were actually two different articles that were initially on the table. One was an access needs article and one was a public health article. So the access needs article included things like universal online access without having to prove like quote unquote a need for it with a medical documentation. And also included some things like centralizing funding to, to make sure that workplaces are fully accessible, so not, not relying on, oh, does your department or your, does your program happen to have funding to make your workplace accessible? Um, because I something that's important to note is that right now at the UC, we don't, we don't even have full compliance with the ADA. So... Uh, that's kind of where we are. And then this access needs article would have gone slightly beyond the ADA in giving protections and access needs. And then the other is the public health article. This included things uh, really that was very much focused on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So it included lifting the UC's actually illegal bans on um, instructors asking students to mask and had other layers of protection for workers amidst this ongoing pandemic. Um, and it's interesting because whereas I think, you know, kind of what I was saying with with the community safety and issues around policing, it's like it started out, oh, there's some support for this and then it quickly changed. In terms of access needs, in general, to me and to you know people I'm talking with and was working with, it was really immediately obvious that the strike and specifically the way the picket was being handled was ableist. Uh, anything from like the hours that were required to physically get to be at the picket to get strike pay. You know, this was unreasonable for anyone, but especially for disabled folks. Um, and that, like the, the sensory experience of the picket at, at Davis was incredibly overstimulating and overwhelming. I like the first, I think probably at least two weeks of the strike, I would go home and I would have meltdowns at home just from the level of overstimulation and, and feeling like oh, this was what was absolutely required of me was a certain kind of participation. Mm-hmm. Um, masking and distancing were really an afterthought if it was like, you know, if these things were like rarely encouraged at all. If, if, even if things went indo- indoors, like nobody was really saying like, oh, you should be masking, mm-hmm. right?
4: Yeah.
3: Um, there were no accessible bathrooms anywhere. There was no shade. There wasn't even, you know, adequate water planned for it. Like, the list just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, and the only alternatives to showing up at the picket line and enduring the situation were, like, oh, you can get on the phone for hours or you can text bank for hours. So there really wasn't options for meaningful participation for disabled folks. It, it just simply was not carefully considered across the campuses. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And, you know, unfortunately, this level of ableism only continued um, when the needs of disabled workers were undermined, they were undermined like even more severely only two weeks into the strike. So November 30th, there was a vote to eliminate these two articles um, and it was we had 19 members of the bargaining team and 10 of the members voted to eliminate these these articles and nine members of the bargaining team voted to keep them.
2: So the so sorry. So the um, access yeah. demands were out before the before the policing demands were. Yeah, they That's were. So interesting. They Even were. Though, as you're saying, in a lot of ways, the you know, the ways that disability justice is being sort of violated and ignored were were very obvious to to a lot of people.
3: Right, and they're really it, it was interesting because it's like at least people I know and groups that I was a part of would try to go talk to the organizers and things like that and there was just no listening at all. There was no budging and it was just sort of, you know, very flippant or often, you know, kind of <laughs> And a bit of a sarcastic joke amongst people is, is that, you know, we, were just, we just kept being told, no, these are historic wins, you know. And, and so even even literally the day after that vote happened, we were being told to our faces by bargaining team members, no, this is still a historic win, <laughs> when they had literally just <laughs> voted to remove what would truly have been a historic win, mm-hmm. Um yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, thank you. Right. you know,
2: I think that's really helpful for people to just kind of understand what was in those demands and you know and the you know and, and, and how they kind of were you know submerged at different points and in different ways through the through the course of the the strike. Um and I think Abby wants to follow up with a question for you.
1: Yeah. Um in the way that you so nicely f- framed those and, and laid out the contents of the the articles that were actually brought in as strike demands and, and particularly the history of the of the policing demand is is really fascinating, right? That it that it predates 2020 is is um a a really sort of interesting window into that as as kind of a longstanding commitment. Mm-hmm. Framed that way though, uh they both sound like uh Workplace safety and um, you know, sort of, uh, th- they seem very connected, right? We can see them as p- as part of a a, a sort of coherent um, workers' rights and workplace safety, you know, sort of uh, set of set of conditions that that are um, very sort of straightforward. But I'm curious for the rank and file members that you you know spent time talking with about these. Uh, how did they understand them as as either connected or separate did it seem like like two separate issues or was was d- disability justice uh, and sort of police abolition thought of thought of together or or were these you know more two two separate pillars of uh, a wider set of demands
3: yeah no it's, it's a really good question I, <laughs> I I don't know that I am situated the best speak about, you know, kind of what was going on around the picket line. Um, I hung out around people who I think <laughs> didn't, didn't question these as being mutually connected to each other and, and mutually important. But um, I, that being said, I also think that these two issues maybe act a little bit as like touchstone issues because they tend to be maybe a little bit further into a lot of people's journeys um, of like becoming more aware of oppression and justice issues and, and sort of like how the state enacts violence on people's bodies. Right. Mm. Um, so I think that for a lot of people that I know and I'm closer to and, and talk to that connection is, really strong and you know for those of us who are disabled and or have experienced police violence Mm -hmm. both of those are ultimately a matter of you know absolutely embodied demands for liberation for free movement you know um for a life that isn't precarious and under that threat of constant violence um you know the the, the carceral surveillance systems of oppression uh, often are talked about as sort of, I don't know, maybe like a theoretical in, in quotes for people who feel like they're not affected by them, even though they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things like that. It's like, for those of us who are disabled, we we have a different experience. It's not theoretical and, and not goes even more so for those with visible disabilities. Yes. You know, yeah, we're, we're impacted by those systems and as I'm well as the systems that aren't con- conceived of as being upholders of the carceral state, like, you know, like the medical system, the mental health industrial complex.
2: Exactly. Uh, yeah. And so I'm wondering, can you I'm wondering, I'd love to hear you just elaborate a little bit more on in the kind of collective of, of folks that you were in solidarity with, like how, like when you talk about the sort of continuity or relation between disability justice and police abolition, like what, I, I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more about how, you know, what 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 are the principles that you see connecting those two things? Just, you know, for our listeners, who, as you say, this is, you know, I think you make a really good point about how these are sort of touchstone issues that people may sort of come to, you know, um, once they've already gotten started on a journey of thinking about this. So I think that would be really helpful to, you know, to hear articulated uh, even more.
3: Yeah, I, I think I can, I can speak a little bit about at least, you know, how I've heard some people talk about it and how I kind of try to talk about it. Uh, and hopefully it'll make some of those connections <laughs> a little bit clearer. But, um, you know, I think that if you you kind of start out and you say a statement like, oh, you know, Academia is an incredibly ableist place, and that that is almost without question or hesitation. Uh, and then you, you kind of start pulling on that thread a little bit and, and you think about, well, you know some of this is um, you know maybe maybe if we're being really generous, maybe it's ignorance of like being unaware that the language, being used or the norms being followed or, or something even like the pace of the work are all incredibly ableist and really inaccessible, that there are so many unexamined norms that add up to this idea that in order to be sort of like a rigorous academic, you know, whatever rigor is, <laughs> but rigor is certainly an academic virtue, right, that you must be abled and that even more than that, you must almost be hyper-abled. You know, you can't have any sign of illness or disability. And um, that when you, when you start to talk about these things, it, it really raises people's hackles up. Um, and then you, you can go to, to places like um, the history and culture of eugenics research and practices in the University of California, which are, of course, ableist and racist and incarceral. Um, and I have to say, when you start to talk about these things, there's there's often if if people have not kind of begun to to think through these things and, and sort of work through them, there's there's not a great track record of how people respond when you try to educate them about your access needs or about the broader issues. There's this like immediate disbelief or skepticism that a need is a need or maybe even a resentfulness that a a need or accommodations would be put into place for access. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's like this immediate, maybe the problem is you mentality. And I think that that's the point where you can kind of begin to start making, I mean, along the ways you can make connections, but this is sort of where I like to make connections is that that maybe the problem is you mentality that's a kind of carceral response. That's a response born out of that, that cop in your head, right? Whose ultimate goal of interacting with other people is not to connect with or even acknowledge that person in front of you, but rather it's this this viewing the world as something that ought to align with and bend to your own will and power
0: mm. and
3: how that is lent to you and enforced by the state. Um, there's also, I think, an overlap in, in many ways that has, like, created, um, you know, quote unquote, like, criminality and disability that's worked really hard at, at making both of these things seem dangerous and even monstrous, mm-hmm. right, of being, like, literally physically threatening by simply existing um and they're they're not sometimes they're identical to but sometimes it's just that there's a lot of overlap with, exactly with those intersection. who experience yeah. police violence and like i say they're not identical and it's really just that they're not identical for all
2: mm-hmm.
3: but i want to be really clear that for black and brown disabled people they're facing multiple marginalizations. Um, in many, many cases, those experiencing police violence are also disabled. Mm-hmm. We, we just saw this, right? And, like, and, and it's sort of, it's more like, again, we just saw this,? Right. <laughs> um, but last week, this, this horrifying example of, of the murder of Anthony Lowe was a black, disabled, paraplegic man. And the response of the police is that, you know, they tased him, and it wasn't enough that they tased him. Mm -hmm. You know, witnesses say he was literally unable to get away. And yet, even still, the cops found him enough of a threat that they murdered him by shooting him 10 times. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's outrageous, right? And maybe this is what it just sort of like really simply comes down to, which is that 50% of people who are murdered by the police are disabled.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That's, that's five zero, you know, 50%, half.
2: Madalena, I think that your your formulation of the, how the term carcerality um creates that overlap between the sort of, you know, policing of people's lives and the way they are, you know, with what we think about historically as policing. I, I think that's um, so helpful and something for us to really sit with and think about. Um, so I think what we're going to do is have a little bit of a music break so everyone can just kind of think over your really, really thoughtful words, and we will come back in a couple of minutes with a couple of questions for you. Sounds great. Thank you.
3: we're searching for a few public affairs hosts. Imagine being on the air talking with underrepresented peoples or educating the public on pressing issues. In case you were wondering, anyone is eligible. Just contact us at publicaffairs at kdvs.org.
1: My name is Sufian Stevens, and you're listening to the Beautiful Sounds of kdvs in davis california welcome back to no police radio uh this is uh we're on kdvs 90.3 fm uh and this is uh dj abby and we are here with madalena a UAW rank and file member from UAW 2865.
2: And the song that you just heard, just so you know, was Hit It and Quit It by Funkadelic.
1: So Madalena, uh, when we left off, you were just speaking about the the sort of place of disability justice in a larger abolitionist framework. And I guess I'm wondering if we can pick up on that a little bit because listening to you, it it sort of strikes me that uh, so much of what we're talking about is a failure of the state and policing more broadly, uh, to sort of tolerate or recognize diversity in its sort of many forms that could be diversity of class diversity of race, and uh, also neurodiversity, right, the, you know, the sort of uh, kinds of of needs and and differences that, uh, you know, sort of make other kinds of people, you know, demand more from a situation or or need something other than uh, what's what's sort of provided, right? Um, and so, I guess I'm wondering if you can just pick up where we left off uh, and sort of help us think about uh, these two things together.
3: Yeah. So thinking about the demands of abolition and. Sorry, can you rephrase it? A little? I got a little lost there. No, you you, you, neurodiversity. You, you,
1: you, were ex- you were exactly picking up on, on exactly where, it is, where I was trying to get. Um, basically, just how do we think about disability justice and abolitionists' demands together, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think um, it, maybe the first thing and, and maybe the surprises people a little bit but is the first point is like recognizing that these aren't, <laughs> these aren't just kind of like sometimes overlapping circles in a Venn diagram, but at the heart, they're the same demands made under the same oppression, mm. right? Um, it's, it's that we are all dreaming of a just and equitable world. Where we can all have a future that where we can we can thrive and where we can be free, um, and I think that uh, first just recognizing that and maybe sitting that with a little bit and starting to pursue some education around you know what is the history of the disability justice movement and something that may be connected to that. I think is understanding that disability justice is is distinct from disability rights. Um, you know, we know especially in abolitionist spaces that the law has severe limits, right? We, we do need to protect or enforce laws that protect disabled folks, but that's, that's not enough. And that's never going to be enough. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, Switching from a mode of existing within disability rights, which is sort of this like, what do I have to give you to um, a mode of disability justice, which is how can we make this world one in which you thrive? That's, that's one way that I, I think that abolitionists are um, really good at like having that imaginary. Um, and that's one way that I think can be thought about, those things can be thought about together. Um, I think, you know, I can say a little bit about maybe even places that abolitionist spaces can can challenge themselves and maybe open up a little bit more Mm -hmm. to disability access, uh, making things accessible, asking disabled folks, you know, what do we need to have access? So that really there can be that nothing about us without us, which is like one of the mottos of the disability justice movement. This, this, this can mean a lot of things. This can mean like rethinking what participation looks like, rethinking ways that people can show up or contribute, or even expectations of how resources like time and energy are allotted. Um, and I think really recognizing that that this isn't just a saying, right? That living with, dis, you know, living disabled in this world, surviving, that itself is revolutionary. Um, and sometimes that can get overlooked or even shamed, especially when, pace, uh, when spaces are, you know, sometimes there's an orientation towards, direct action which I, I praise and affirm is absolutely vital to abolition but you know speaking for myself um, sometimes I've felt that there's not always room for me or my disabled neurodivergent mentally ill friends because sometimes our pace of living is according to what's called crip time or sometimes because care is like an afterthought rather than something that's built into the fabric of an abolitionist space. So I think that, you know, there, there, there is and, and has been and there is growing to be room and time in the abolitionist movement for disabled people. And, yeah, to get there, that you know, sometimes it just takes a little bit more time and care and imagination, but um, that's, that's what has to happen. I don't know if that <laughs> gets to your question.
1: No, it absolutely does. And I think that that call to rethink abolitionist spaces in terms of access is is really a sort of key takeaway that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly need to take on board and think about more broadly.
2: Yeah, thank you, Madalena. I really appreciate that. I mean, one of the things that it makes me think about is I think there is sometimes this sort of dichotomy that happens between like what kind of action is just who who is able to do action that's disruptive and who is not you know and I think it's important to recognize Mm -hmm. that there might be a lot of ways that you know disabled folks who are just as angry and you know want to get free just as much as you know as as other folks in a disabled in in a in an abolitionist space like there's there's lots of different ways to be disruptive you know there's lots of different ways to um mess things up for the state wouldn't you say. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Th- and absolutely. I, and I think that that's I think that's a really good point and really worth thinking about. Thank you for that. Um so we have one more question for you. Um this is actually I'm sort of going to like loop back to uh some of the really interesting narrative that you were providing us with at the beginning um of the call just about, you know, kind of how events unfolded uh during the strike and and some of the activities of um the union and leadership, uh, you know, leadership sort of in relation to rank and file. Um, and I guess what I am wondering about, what I'm really interested in hearing you talk about is, um, and I, I don't know, I mean, th- this may not be like a yes, no answer. So, you know, feel free to treat it as you would like to treat it. But I'm wondering, like, do you think that there's a future for pursuing these demands, these deeply inter- interrelated demands of Disability justice and police abolition, through traditional labor organizing like the union. I mean, I'm wondering, especially because you were a wildcat striker. Like, I'm wondering what you think about these demands, kind of in relation to both the possibilities, but also like the limitations of labor organizing, as you know, as as happened this time, doing this kind of um, authorized strike. You know, that 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 UAW 2865 had a vote on. Do you sort of see what I'm saying about this question or do you want me to phrase it a different way?
3: Yeah, I think so. And you, I'm, I'll start answering and you can kind of like <laughs> tell me, oh, I meant something different. If I'm going off on something that you, you know, you're, you're not meaning. Um, and we'll get there. I have confidence. <laughs> I do um, you too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, <laughs> I personally think that I adhere a little bit to the, the sort of like, improv yes and (laughs) method of this you know i i know that after the wildcat a lot of people came away extremely jaded and and for really good and legitimate reasons um about our union leadership um and i i totally respect that that position and i think that you know everything that we've we've just been through again with the strike and and the way that Um, it was really so crystal clear that for people who want abolition and people who want disability justice and, you know, beyond these things, right, we we had a a really incredible broad set of demands at the beginning that what is going to happen is that we are going to get the lowest common denominator Mm -hmm. out of that if we're going through these um you know like if we're using the 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 union and we're relying on the union leadership what we're going to get is the lowest common denominator and that's inadequate right that has always been inadequate (laughs) um i think that if there is resources for it it does not mean that you do not have the ability potentially to use something that is inadequate to get to something that is a, 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 a broader vision, but that you really have to understand the limitations of that. And you have to kind of, um, I think in some ways, like know when to stop putting effort into that sort of like those official channels. Uh Right. Uh Um, and that, that's, that's hard, you know, that, (laughs) that's not something that you, you just, can go into just sort of knowing like, hey, these are the absolute limits. I think that it, it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of reflection. Um, but, you know, while we are building this different reality, we, we also have this reality to work within. And I think especially when it comes to disability justice, you know, um, I, I, th- there are things that we can do. And I, I guess like some of the things that I'm thinking of, I know are actually happening right now, you know, like the, the, the strike is over, but the organization continues. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and like some of that is like, there is a push for getting like disability savvy people in positions of power in the union. And I think that, that is important. Um, but then, you know, maybe, maybe even more in- importantly is it's like, getting people trained who are not ableist, who can help on contract enforcement, right? Because this is like the day-to-day sort of workings of what we're living under, while also having action beyond that and being really expansive in that. Um, I think that if we rely only on these sort of like sanctioned forms of power, we're never going to get there, mm-hmm. but um, just me personally, I'm okay using them, but I've, <laughs> I have my serious limits, you know, and I, I don't expect much from them. I think is kind of where I am.
2: I think that makes a lot of sense. And Madalena, you speak like a very experienced organizer, and I think that that is super useful for a lot of our listeners who are Kind of coming into this from you know different places and different levels of experience themselves um abby did you want to add anything
1: no i think i think that idea that you you know um you use you use the platform of uh the union and the and the the broader network there to to get as far as you can but you realize that it's not going to take you all the way and that's um that's probably about the right relationship to any kind of massive institution like that realizing that uh the demands that that are put out there that that represent true justice, right? That represent you know uh, the, the sort of radical horizon of of uh, disability justice or of abolition more broadly, uh, are going to demand something a little more a little more decisive uh, and a little more radical than than uh, what any kind of large institution like a union can provide. So thank you for that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank
2: you. Yeah, I I really want to thank you, Madalena. I think that um, this was this this gave our listeners a lot to think about. um, If this was, you know, an area, if this was kind of an aspect of justice and freedom for everyone that they had not thought about before. I think they will, you know, think about it really seriously now. Um, And I think your words have really, you know, um, given us some some useful points to just sort of sit with and, you know, and meditate on and think about. Um, so thank you so much, Madalena. We really, really appreciate your time and, uh, and your generosity, and it was great to talk to you.
3: Thank you so much for um, the platform and for you know you yourself having disability justice as part of your abolition vision. That's, um, it means so much to me and I know to others.
2: Thank you so much. All right, take care of yourself, not Elena.
3: Thank you, you too. All right,
2: bye. Bye. All right, so I think we're gonna head into another little music interlude and then we've got Bad Cop, Good Project and a little bit of a, well, we thought, again, we thought it was funny. (laughs) Whether you think it's funny or not, I guess, remains to be seen Um, and thanks again to Madalena for calling in it was really really great to talk to them
5: oh, Dambala.
6: Oh. come Dambala.
5: Out of the sea On the seventh day, God will be there on the seventh night. And then... Um It's loud. And the...
3: You've heard about the opiate crisis. Opiates are powerful, pain-reducing medications prescribed by doctors, but they can also be very dangerous. In fact, most overdose deaths involve opiates. So what can you do? A lot. Trouble with opiates often start at home with unused medications in your cabinets or drawers. Opiates could be in pill bottles, syrups, or even prescription patches. Whatever they look like, dispose of unused opiate medications safely before they hurt your family. Find out how to remove the risk at fda.gov slash drug disposal.
4: this is Willie Nelson and I need your help. Our marijuana laws are terribly unfair and they make criminals out of law-abiding citizens. Nearly 2,000 Americans are arrested every day on marijuana charges and we are unfairly destroying the lives and careers of hundreds of thousands of people simply because they smoke marijuana. These are not criminals. They are average citizens like you, good neighbors who work hard, raise families, pay taxes, and contribute to their communities. And it's time we stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. We need your help to end marijuana prohibition once and for all. It's the fair thing to do.
0: For more information, contact NORML, the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws. Call toll-free 888-67-NORML or visit their website at NORML.org.
2: hello hello we are back this is no police radio at uh, 90.3 in davis california you were just listening to the wonderful nina simone and damballa and this is odette and i'm gonna pass it on to abby
1: all right so we have our segment bad cop good project and for this week's bad cop I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, role of elite policing squads both in policing but also in uh the sort of discourse around police and the the way that these have have recently come up for quite a bit of attention uh with the murder of tyree nichols in memphis uh, a lot of attention is turned to the role of scorpion uh so-called scorpion group in the city and this is uh a force that a lot of uh, major cities have. It's it's an elite policing squad within the city that's that's kind of given broader license to to be deployed and to tackle uh, areas of supposedly high crime, right? And so they're given uh, you know sort of relaxed oversight. Uh, they in Memphis, for example, they were allowed to to travel around in unmarked police cars, uh, and a lot of the the rules are, that are supposed to keep police from Profiling and violating the rights of citizens uh, were relaxed for this particular group. Um, these squads, make no mistake, are a kind of force for evil. Uh, we've seen over and over uh, the most local example of this in California, of course, is the the Rampart uh, unit in Los Angeles. That was that was part of LAPD. Uh, and you know was uh taken apart because it was revealed that the the police officers involved in it had engaged in sort of countless crimes and rights violations uh, and absolutely uh these elite p- policing squads are are terrible uh but I think they're also sort of used or at least they're they're sort of demonized uh in the way that uh we often see when these kinds of uh high profile incidents happen. Uh, they're sort of called out as as being you know just a few bad apples right, and that everyday normal policing uh, is is not so bad, but it's you know it's these elite police squads that are that are the problem right, and so uh, I think that that sort of hides the fact that it's it's not just the times when the police set up a sort of police force within the police, uh, it's it's the police themselves that are the problem, and so. Uh, this week's bad cop is is not just the members of the scorpion squad which the memphis police department disbanded uh, but the entire memphis police department that enabled the whole thing to happen
2: thank you abby Yes. T L D R (laughs) FTP. Yeah, (laughs) no, I think that's good to point out. I mean, there, you know, I feel like there's always ways in which people are like, well, you know, if this was some other version of cops that was a different version of cops, then it would be OK. But there is no version of cops that is OK. And so I think, you know, it's important for us to to keep all that in mind. Um, So I wanted to quickly mention the good project and then we're going to tell you a little story to close out the show. Um, I would like to shout out a great organization called Davis Books to Prisoners that has been maintained for a while by some very, very hardworking working volunteers. And as it sounds like, they send reading material and other kinds of resources to um, incarcerated folks. And they take uh, donations of books. But I saw that they put on Twitter recently the excellent point that postage fees have gone up recently. And so they could also use just like monetary donations to help them pay for their postage so they can get those books out there. And they are on Twitter at books to prisons um so to like the number two so books to number two prisons all one word so if you would um if it's a thing that uh is within your capacity to do when you want to send them a little support um or even just like follow them on twitter you know and see what they're up to i just wanted to mention them uh since you know this seems like a This seems like a really um, worthwhile project and, uh, yeah, just something and something that's local here, you know, that's that's sort of come out of UC Davis as well um, or out of the Davis community. OK, now, so here's what, I, I, I'm really like I should not have built the story up because people are going to be like, that wasn't that funny. And then. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? We'll never know if you thought that because we're on the radio. <laughs> we, have, we have no idea how you're reacting to anything. So we're just going to tell it. So we heard some gossip today and I was kind of thinking about this, like while the rest of the show was going on. And I was like, well, you know, is it snitching? Like, is it snitching to like tell this story on someone else? I mean, first of all, what we're doing is snitching on basically cops, and so I feel like that's not the same as like snitching in general. But you know, so don't snitch unless it's against the cops. Um, but but I'm going to put this in the category of gossip, which I feel like is a slightly different, a slightly different category. So I'm just I'm just going to go with it. So we heard that there were some uh, really nice folks tabling today for the organization Cops Off Campus, which we have mentioned a few times on this show. And, you know, so they were out there. They had brought their own table and they had a nice tablecloth and some rad zines, which I'm going to say a little more about in a second. Um, And so there they were just, you know, actually giving coffee out to folks and chatting with them and having a really nice time. And people kept, like, coming up to them, like administrators kept coming up to them and asking them to leave. And they said things like the issue is the table. They didn't like that there was a table there, supposedly, even though, like, Other people in that area had stuff, you know, that was kind of on the ground and around them. Um, But at one point, we heard that an administrator from the Office of Student Involvement, Mm -hmm. yeah, came up to them and said that, well, there are are laws and university policies against you, like having a table here, and then proceeded to say to the tablers, I'm not going to call the police
1: which is a way of saying i could call the police
2: exactly so they basically kind of low-key threatened these tablers who were just like sitting there you know minding their own well i guess not minding their own business you know talking to people and getting you know getting them coffee and stuff and so it just seemed so pathetic and ridiculous to actually kind of low-key passive aggressively threaten a bunch of tablers because you are um so anxious about the possibility that somebody might be talking about cops off campus um and so i you know we just wanted to kind of mention that story just to give you a sense of like how yeah like how you know policed an organization can be when it talks about you know getting rid of police um and i think the other thing that was i mean mostly we just thought it was kind of funny that you know the idea that the the table was like such a terrifying object to them you know <laughs> it's like a it, you know there, I know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of important critical theory on the table and what it can be you know um, but in this case the table was apparently just something super scary um, but the other thing that I wanted to mention about this too was that you know in a way they sort of ended up like proving our point you know which is that you don't have to be a, like an officer with a you know with a gun and a badge to be a cop in certain ways um, you know there are lots and lots of people on this campus in various kinds of administrative positions who are basically kind of engaging in cop-like behavior all the time, you know? Um, And it actually gets back to what Madalena was saying as well, you know, the way that um, just, you know, the the carceral way in which a lot of education is conducted, the sort of punitive models by which it functions, you know, um, all of that I think is, you know, is related to a kind of way of being in the world that we really want to change. Um, but so, you know, just wanted to mention that, you know, that like these, uh, some of these admin, yeah, are functioning as cops. There is a very nice zine that Cops Off Campus has put out. I think it's called, um, Cops by any other name. Is that right? Yeah. So the next time you are, um, on campus and you see the cops off campus table you should stop by and ask for a zine it has like a really really nice little rundown of all the different like other people who don't look like cops um on campus but actually are i think that same piece is on the cops off campus website also if you want to take a look at it there but this is like an important thing i think to recognize you know that um you are being policed and surveilled on this campus in, you know, in a number of different ways, some of which may be more obvious than others. And Abby, you, you look like you had something you want to add about
1: this. Well, just to, to come back to that table, right? <laughs> it's, if, if the table is supposedly the complaint, right? This is the role of the pretext. There's, if, if they don't like what you're saying, and anything can become a pretext to, to sort of bother and harass you. Uh, and it sounds like that might have been, uh, you know, a, a sort of light version of of what folks got, you know, out out in front of the MU today. So just, uh, it's it's a reminder again of the the sort of way that a, a certain kind of police logic can pervade lots of different roles and people and, and and places for sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, you know, as you as you know, there's been a lot of. Um, You know, Gary May has been putting out a lot of stuff about free speech and how much he supports it and everybody getting to kind of say their thing. But, you know, you can also see how that is. uh, There's a lot of conditions on that for people who want to say certain kinds of things, you know, like what the folks at Cops Off Campus want to say about abolishing police. So, yeah, I think I think I think Abby makes a really good point also about the the pretext for censorship. So, yeah. So that was our story. I, you know, I feel like I just didn't tell it in a very funny way. It was like funny when it happened. You're just going to have to.
1: Everyone out there is. Laughing, (laughs) right now, rolling on the floor. Believe (laughs) me, Odette.
2: (laughs) That's so nice of you, Abby. I really appreciate that. I'm like very afraid that isn't true, but (laughs) but there's really nothing I can do about it. Anyway, thank you for listening to the story, and um, I think that kind of does it for tonight. Yeah,
1: that does it for Odette and I. Uh, Local Bag will, of course, have uh, some more great songs for us. Yes, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. (laughs)
1: And so, uh, just once again, this is No Police Radio on 90.3 FM, KDVS.
2: Yeah, and we will be back again, or maybe not us, but someone will be back again uh, two weeks from now at the same time. We are on the air every other Monday at 4.30 California time. So please tune in then, and everybody, um, take care of yourselves and each other. We love you, FTP. (laughs)
4: Okay. <laughs>
0: mentioned before you're listening to or you were listening to no police radio you're still listening to no police radio um except this is the last portion where i get to play some funky little tunes for y'all um i also get to practice my french that song was la valse Amelie." <laughs> sorry i really butchered that sorry to all the french majors and french speakers i'm so sorry this was the third song off of the soundtrack for the movie amelie which i absolutely adore but um yeah we're just going to continue with the music for the last 15 14 minutes that we have together here and then afterwards we have some more great tunes for you um on a different show but let's see i hope you all enjoyed the content that was that was shared today but i think up next i'm going to play valerie or valerie by frank zappa and the mothers of invention
4: i no, no.
1: Common sense, baby, all it takes to keep your family healthy this flu season. (laughs) The California Association for Nurse Practitioners says simple steps like frequently washing hands, getting plenty of rest, and reducing stress can help ward off the flu. Simple steps for a healthy America.
0: that I have not gotten the flu this flu season yet. Um, yeah, winter quarter is bad enough as it is. We don't need to be getting sick. So we are inclined to wear our masks and, you know, keep each other healthy and safe and stay home if you're not feeling well, if you're able to. Uh And yeah, wash your hands regularly. Y'all nasties. But yeah, we just listened to Basta by Resistencia. Um Very spanish revolutionary band um very sly and before that was obviously pork and beans by weezer um and yeah honestly just they really they really do give me i listen to no police radio vibes honestly but i think i'm going to play one more song for y'all and then um we're going to move on to the next show so once again thank you so much for tuning in this has been no police radio and um this is your your one of your hosts local bag And I'm going to play y'all out with um, a Miles Davis song titled For Adults Only off of the album Miles Davis and Horns. (laughs) ¶¶